Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Kevin Hollibaugh. Kevin is a strength coach working in the New York Yankees player development program. He's also the owner of ProForce Sports Performance in Cincinnati, Ohio. Kevin has been in strength and conditioning since 2009. He's previously, amongst other positions, served as the director of baseball player development at the University of Cincinnati. He also currently serves as an adjunct professor there. Kevin's gym, ProForce, happens to be only a few miles from my home in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it's been great spending time there, uh, not only playing one of the most fun Ultimate Frisbee uh, game variations, and we'll be talking about that on the show today, uh, with the pro baseball players there, as well as Kevin and his staff, but also having great training discussions based on what they're seeing through data points and athlete profiling. And so on the show today, Kevin will be speaking on his database on some of the training machines he has, such as the 1080 and the Proteus Motion, and how those fit with both speed development as well as rotational power development. Kevin will speak on how his training and what he looks as important in training has evolved since he's been able to get the unique feedback that those machines offer. We'll also be talking about training strengths, weaknesses, and a lot of other coaching insight throughout the show today. I'm excited to get you this one. Being able to spend time with Kevin and at his gym has been really helpful in my own coaching as well as my athletic process. Before we get started, I wanted to highlight our two sponsors, Lost Empire Herbs and Exogen Wearable Resistance by Leela. Lost Empire Herbs is my go-to supplement line ever since I had Logan Christopher, who is the Lost Empire Herbs CEO, as a podcast guest, speaking on mental training, actually, not herbalism. But through that, I got into the Lost Empire Herbs product lines. I found that right off the bat or instantly, my energy, my sense of well-being, my decreased dependence on caffeine uh, were markedly, are markedly improving. What I didn't expect out of that was actually that my strength was also increasing. And ever since, I've had so many clients and folks who I've recommended the product to agree with me. It's a great way to source your supplementation with that real natural emphasis. If you want to check out my favorite Lost Empire Herbs products, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. You can use the code justfly as well to get 15% off your order. Our next sponsor is Exogen Wearable Resistance by Leela. The future is light, as Joseph Dolcetti says, and Exogen Gear helps you to dial in specifically in a problem-solving constraint-based format for athletes for any sports skill out there, from sprinting, throwing, swinging a golf club, you name it. Exogen can allow you to creatively modulate the way the athlete is experiencing high-velocity resistance that is highly specific to the sports skill that they are looking at. So I'm really excited to have them as a sponsor. Uh, you can grab 15% off of your Exogen order by heading to lilateam.com. That's L-I-L-A team. Dot com and you can use the code JFS2023 and you can grab your 15% off. All right, with that said, let's get to an uninterrupted podcast with Coach Kevin Hollibaugh. Kevin, it's great to have you on the podcast, man. So I wanted you to get your recollection of something that's actually been a very important part of my life this past year, which is the opportunity to play ultimate frisbee. Well, it's not actually ultimate frisbee <laughs> again, but tell me a little bit about, I like the minor or, or pro, um, I don't know if you have a major as well, uh, baseball players in there, but there's this frisbee game that you guys play that I've literally, I think I had it's the most fun I've had in the last 10 years. So tell me a little bit about that and then how that specific rendition came to be. Yeah, so it actually kind of dates back to when we had COVID. So I'd always been a big advocate of like, I'm not going to do anything outside of the norm with these guys. Like they're given to me by the teams. I don't want to mess anything up, right? We're already taking them through a pretty rigorous off-season training program. And then 
you always see like in the contracts or you hear the horror stories of somebody rolling their ankle playing basketball or anything like that. And um, we're in a unique situation because we're inside of a big indoor facility, right? So the game Joel's referencing is basically if you envision like a indoor soccer field that's boarded, it's used for uh, box lacrosse as well. And we just kind of create an ultimate Frisbee version of that game where you're trying to shoot a Frisbee into the soccer goals that are on that field with different constraints, right? Like you can't go inside the goal box. There's a two-pointer. There's a three-pointer. And we'd always played that with the younger athletes. And then 2020 hit and you're looking at these guys who are competitors, right? And their season's getting pushed back. Their season's getting canceled. Now you're looking at guys that have been literally training for a season for close to eight to nine months when they're used to training for a season for three to four. Finally, I just kind of was like, do you guys want to compete? Do you guys want to like, I can count this as cardio. Let's strap on the heart rate monitors and let's see what happens. Like absolutely no contact. Stay the hell away from each other. Let's not get hurt. Be smart about everything. And it was interesting because within the first five minutes, you look over at the screen and the heart rate monitors, everybody's in red, right? So you're looking at it. Oh, damn. Okay. This is pretty good conditioning work for these guys. And since then, it's kind of taken this turn and evolution to where that's the part that they look forward to the most in the offseason. They'll talk to their teammates about how they play ultimate frisbee and so forth. And it's really funny because now they'll try to sell it as like, well, this is our speed work. No, I can count this as conditioning. I understand what you're saying about like, it could be counted as speed work, right? Because we're, we're being athletic. We're moving in different planes of movement. We're reacting to a stimulus. But I think for them... It's an outlet to continue to compete throughout the offseason when they don't have that competition every single day that they're used to, right? We're playing 162 games a year. Some, some of them are playing more than 162 games a year. So that's kind of the evolution of where our ultimate Frisbee game kind of came from. And it's been interesting to see guys kind of evolve. Like a few years ago, when we first started, Josh and I, Josh, my chief performance officer, and I, we were easily the first two picks because we could, we could nail the, the long distance shots. We're good all the other players weren't as good. And now you see it to where like I'm consistently the last pick because I don't have the seven different shots that everybody has evolved into. Like They're practicing it. Guys that can't play because they might be coming off an injury, you see them over in the gym just tra- practicing different types of throws and so forth. And it's funny the evolution that a simple game has taken and how it can define kind of like the training of an offseason. But that's, that's kind of what it's morphed into. So. Yeah, that actually, speaking of the speed date, for me personally, at, at 39 years old, that was my speed date for me. I did like a little bounding afterwards sometimes, but like, I was like, this is the heart rate in the red. I wish, uh, I wish I would have put a heart rate monitor on myself for that. And, you know, I was going to ask you because I was thinking about like Jeremy Frisch talks about this and basically where kids are making up their own rules. You know, it's like kids on the playground and they're like, hey, let's do this. Let's do this rule. And I, it was really that game. Part of what made it so much fun is like, yeah, ultimate Frisbee is, is fun. But the ability to actually, you have to throw the Frisbee into the the net, which is like, basically, I think it's like a smaller than typical soccer net. It's like maybe half the size. I'm not even, yeah. I don't even know. And the cool thing about it struck me as it, it was almost like, hey, we're playing and like, oh, this would be cool. A two-pointer from half court, which is like, I don't know, maybe like 30 yards or something. Like, it's like usually a hammer throw and then a three-pointer is like, uh, like 40 or 50, you know, and I'm curious, like, was it like the players like, hey, we should do this rule here? Like, how did that game come together and with with everybody? Was it like a lot of mutual, like, people thinking about it? Or did you and Josh just walk out and be like, oh, let's just make the, you know, make these rules? Or I think it was more of like the staff coming up with the rule set. I know there's many times where there's no like rule book or guide to it, but there's 
there's many arguments about like, well, can you do that? Can you not do that? And how the rules kind of morph and change throughout every off season. I know this year, Josh and I looked at each other and we're like, let's add a three pointer this year. Like, really? Like, yeah. I mean, if you can make it from that far back, let's let's reward you for it. And it's interesting to see because now you have people choosing like positions in it. So like our taller pitchers that are long and lanky, but there's no goalie, but they'll play around the goal box because you can't go inside of it. But to see them try to jump up and deflect frisbees, that's their athletic skill set, and they're picking and putting themselves in a position for success within the confines of the game. And it's interesting to see who gets picked first because it's always, oh, I want the tall, lanky guy that can help defend the goal because it kind of neutralizes Josh or, or me from a two pointer perspective because I got I got to navigate it around a giant body, and there's a ceiling to it that's only about 15 feet, so you got a small window to try to fit it in there. Yeah, I forgot about that net up there. Well, that's one thing I was thinking about too is Lee Taff was talking about just how, and I think about this in contrast to any other sport. So whether it's baseball guys, basketball, football, it's all a ball. I mean, there is the like a, a growing ultimate Frisbee league that people keep sending me these videos. Like it's getting bigger, you know, it's getting bigger. I think there was a tournament up, up north here in Mason or something this summer, Lebanon or something. But the one of the things that I think stands out about a Frisbee is compared to any ball you throw, it's like here's something that does sit in the air for a longer time. So either A, you have a longer time to chase it. It's a different way of tracking than your typical. There's a, sometimes there's almost more scuffles like, you know, leading up to it, which, you know, you want to avoid like someone, you know, falling and spraining their ankle. I think I was the cause of that a couple times. Actually, I felt, <laughs> I felt bad. But one is I, I really love and I, you know, I don't want to make this like so much about, hey, here's this game you know, that you had invented and I was able to play with you guys. But it's more, I always look at these games in terms of, I think sometimes, and, and it's good to, to get into the, the nuances of speed for sure and, and agility and perception. But when you get some of these things in a way that kids get things on the playground, you know, and especially when it's n- you're not in season too. I'm just like, there's something that's so special to that. And then, you know, one thing I was going to say was it was cool to see, you, you get this huge mix of people playing. And There'd be a few people who could barely throw it, like typically, but then they could do an overhead throw and score these two pointers. Like, and so it's like you know that guy's going to be there, and just the strategy of that it brought about was really interesting to me. And the funny thing is, I mean, all baseball players can throw certainly, but I, there was a lot more pitchers in that group than I thought. And there's all these guys who are just dangerous with the overhead shot, and I'm like, this is why you guys are all so good and love this game so much. You know, if it's a bunch of me, I'd be missing, you know, like all sorts of half court shots, but. Yeah, just the like it's almost like when you have games and you can have it so that different people can take on different roles too. I think that adds a really fun dynamic and with the group as well. And it filters in. I, I think it certainly all filters into the training session. I know you and or Josh was saying that after like if you test vertical after, and I noticed it's just like basketball or anything else, right? But you're you're gonna jump higher if you test your sprint, you're probably gonna sprint a little faster. Like it was also just as with any game, but as excellent of a warm up of a game as I've done. So I think all of that contributed to that. I mean, it, that's just my type is I'll, I'll play this game four days a week for a warm up and then work out, you know? So, oh, and trust me, they try to play it every single day. So you got to put, you got to put the kibosh on that. Uh, one time a week is, is enough for me, but no, it, it it's interesting. And I think the last thing to add about that, that I really like about it as a game is you get those situations where it's a breakaway. And you're all alone standing there at the line to shoot, right? And how many times does somebody just completely choke and just shanks it? So you get those opportunities too that you don't necessarily get in sport that are a little bit low key, right? A high pressure situation where I can kind of, okay, I better control my heart rate and make it right here. Or I better not focus. Let me just try to, to rip it in. And it gives the athlete a chance to kind of 
overcome that situation, whether it's a high schooler, middle schooler, or one of the professional guys, right? Instead of it being bottom of the ninth, two outs, and there's a runner on third base, and he's the tying run, right? Let's give them a little more low-key situation to be under some pressure and, and see if they can succeed. Yeah, I, I love that. That that reminds me a little bit about, so when Paul Cater was on this show a few years ago, he was talking about, you know, and sometimes I think about this, like what is the, as the, the field, the field of sport in general evolves, you have the different silos, right? The sport coach, strength coach, you have speed within there, game, you know, where all these things sit. And one of the things that Paul said about, I guess you call it just the physical preparation space, is that this is a place that it is, I mean, it's always, you need to be able to make mistakes anywhere, but it is the most safe place to go and make mistakes. You know, there's, you can, you can be as creative as you want. You can, um, there's no repercussions if you lose this game compared to your typical gameplay. And as such, it's a great place to learn. Like, as you said, it's funny because when I was playing, I remember, I think the first game, like I, I didn't have any expectations of myself. I did pretty well for not having thrown a Frisbee in a while. And it's funny because the second or third time I came to play, like I was dropping it a lot. I think I was starting to put pressure on myself, getting kind of nervous. And I was like, why am I? And then I was like, oh, the same, the same shit happened as I was playing basketball in high school. And my coach called me bubbles. And then that's always coming back to me because I, my mind, there would be something that was going on that would distract me from being able to actually like hold the ball and, and do what I was capable of. And so it actually brought up a big thought process for me on why that was. And then ironically, in, very, in a very kind of funny manner, one of the baseball guys was talking about like choking or, or having a slump and needing to go to therapy for it. And I was like, oh, maybe, you know, like the, apparently there's, anyways, all, I'm, all that to say is just playing that game was a good place for me actually to kind of reflect on here being a little bit older too, like some of the reasons that I was so hit or miss in my own athletic career. And it gives you kind of a good place. And I actually found myself like, right, I'll breathe a little bit slower before this game here. And I'll, you know, find ways to kind of take pressure off myself. And also thinking about how much pressure I do put on myself. So um, not to get carried away, but I totally agree with what you say. I think it's it's like if if it is this box of physical preparation, the ability to create these opportunities that aren't your sport itself, but they they themselves are big learning opportunities. That's a really powerful thing that we can offer people because we talk about yeah, we'll help you get strong and robust and faster. But ultimately, there's there's more to it than just that too. You know, there's and you get to that human side of things. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Yeah, no problem. I wish I would have known about the name Bubbles. No, don't tell him. Well, it's out now, so <laughs> I can't hide that any longer. I, actually, that's probably the first time I had mentioned that in a while. I'm just saying that that definitely reminded me. I, he actually, my coach actually thought it was funny. I didn't find this funny when I was in high school. Maybe I would now, but he took like sticky, like spray glue or something and put it on my hands and he, and he held the ball. He's like, you're not going to drop it now. And it's like, I can't play with this. I couldn't even barely pass it. He was dying laughing. I was I was, that's probably why I ended up in track and field. Let's just put it that way. There's, I had a little, I had a little bit more control of the way that I uh, manage pressure and whatnot. But as I go forward too, I, I keep thinking, well, I really want to be able to take on these, these elements. Like the same reason I think dropping a, an easy Frisbee pass that you should have made, there's other reasons. But anyways, I don't want to go into the bubbles phase too much more. We could talk about that maybe, maybe later, or maybe next time we play later on. But anyways, Kevin, tell me a little bit about the the history of this gym and then you just kind of how it started. And, and I know you've been through, I think, one or two or three different facilities. Uh, tell me how this gym got to the place that it is. And with that, I guess it'll tell us a little bit more about your background as well. Yeah. So I think I never really fully had any intentions of being a gym owner or, or running a sports performance gym. It all kind of stemmed from we were living in Indianapolis. I was working for a great facility and company in St. Vincent. And it, it's one of those situations where 
like uh, a guy we were talking about before we actually started this conversation, like I had a, a great phone call with Ron McKeefer just checking in with me, seeing how everything was going. And he hit me with a nice challenging point, right? He said, what are your goals? Like, what's your end goal? We even talked about this a little bit. And at the time it was like, well, I really want to have kind of what Cressy has. And I want to be the off season, the go-to person, in the Midwest for professional baseball players. That's where I'd like to get to. And uh, he had a very good question for me. He's like, well, why, why aren't you doing that? And I was like, well, I don't know if I can where I'm at because there's all these people. Like, that's not how the facility is set up per se. And then my other point back to him was like, well, I just had a kid, right? And his point back is, well, is that kid going to get any cheaper the race? No. So it kind of opened my eyes. And then uh, weirdly, like a week or two later, I had this weird meeting with the CEO of one of the banks here in town in Cincinnati brought his son to Indy for me to eval because he knew our our leader at the time. And I did that eval and came in on the weekend and we get done with the evaluation and I just wrote him up a quick training program. And he goes, you know, we've been everywhere in Cincinnati to train and no one's ever told us anything close to what you just did. And that kind of opened my eyes a little bit. And I was like, okay, light bulb. And I go, well, where have you trained? Right. Just thinking, okay, it's been, it's been bad experiences. Right. And then he starts listing off like what I would consider like the top three places. I'm like, well, oh, shit. Call my wife. I'm like, I think we might have something here. And um, I told her, if you want to look for a job back in Cincinnati, we can be closer to family. I think I have something to go to market with. And then just one thing led to another and started out of a small spin cycle room. And now we have two facilities in Cincinnati and it's been super successful because we put value on kind of training our coaches up, really high quality coaching program design based off the valuation, having data lead our programming. And it's something that we just kind of, if you look around, I think a lot of people are still kind of whiteboarding stuff, right? Instead of looking at, okay, this and kind of more traditional, kind of like a college setting would. I'm going to write my whole cycle up and then for the amount of time I'm going to be working with an athlete and then work backwards, right? And we kind of take more of that style. now. Do I need to do that with a middle schooler? No, not necessarily. But I think having data as metrics is is key. I'm not getting lost in the data, right? I think far too often people can be paralyzed by numbers. But just making sure that we're making progress, tracking that progress, like the evolution of just our data recording it has been huge over the last few years on how we reference back to that instead of it being a thousand different sheets, trying to put it digitally on onto a platform so we can easily show the athlete and the parent history. But without getting extremely long-winded, like going from me in a spin closet room to we're 11 coaches deep now. We have four coaches that work full-time at high schools for us um, that help support the brand and two locations. So it's exceeded every every dream I ever had for it. And it's one of those things where I'm sure we'll get into it later, but that kind of what's next mentality of shit, what, what is next? Because I've already done everything I thought I was going to do. And exceeded that. So that can be a big paralysis right there as a as an entrepreneur is you're you're getting so far past the realm of what you thought you could do that it's like, well, what what am I doing next? So I think that's something we're gonna lead into eventually. But I mean, that that's kind of the evolution of Proforce. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really, you know, one of the things I was gonna ask you too. And as I as I uh, you know, come play Frisbee here, occasionally I work out here and I see you have a lot of like technology points that that yield data, and I've and it's it's funny too because I my the way my mind is um, I'm a very macro to micro mind, yeah, so like I always will look at the big picture first, and then like you know, and then start to 
go into the details. And I think that, you know, and everyone has different uh, strengths and weaknesses in the way they think. And I think for me, it's a weakness is if I don't see any, you know, if I see no data. I think the base, the most basic, though, being a tracker is the most basic data if you're doing track as well, what was your time? You know, that's a data point. But it's been interesting, too, for me to like, to go through like what various athletes look like on the 1080 sprint, for example, and you look at what their acceleration profile and rating is, and then it's like, hey, do these athletes with this technique, what's their, or these athletes with this rating, like what does their technique look like? Like, are there any generalities that you see from a technical perspective? And for me, that's really helpful because it's like, oh, now there's a data point that I can actually, it's, uh, you, you talk like mental heuristics or shortcuts that people will make to prove their point. And it's just nice to be able to, to be able to bounce those ideas off and say, hey, you guys actually have the data for this. So it's not something I talk about a ton on this podcast, but it is really valuable and it's definitely helped me out to be able to reflect the way my mind works on something that's more, I guess you could say it's more solid in nature. Yeah, I think that's been huge for us since we've purchased like the Proteus and the 1080, right? Because you go through your your whole career as a strength coach. This is a field where we borrow things from everybody, right? Like how many people actually come up with something on their own, right? It's more an iteration of what you've seen previously. And I think we're all taught like, uh, here's the way to teach speed. Here's the way to teach this exercise. Here's the way to train this core. Here's how you train rotational power. And then you start to get on these pieces of technology and you're like, well, shit, that didn't translate. Or you see somebody run and you're like, that looked like an absolute terrible sprint. And then you look at the data on the 1080 and you're like, what the hell? Like, those data points were actually pretty good. So it starts to change your mind and your thought process a little bit on like what is actually true, what is actually real. And it kind of makes you kind of shut up as a coach a lot more, right? Where I think if you were to come into our facility two, three years ago, when we're coaching speed, particularly, right, we're probably yelling a lot more feedback at the athletes. And we've really become more of like, I'm just going to shut my mouth and see how they move, right? It's my job as an as a coach to create an environment for success for every single one of my athletes. And whether it's in the weight room, whether it's in each speed session, that environment should teach them something, right? So I always say with our coaches and people ask us what makes our speed and agility particularly different or anything like that. And I just tell people, I'm not here to teach like smoke and mirror speed and agility, right? I'm here to teach movement is a language of power expression, right? So to speak. So I'm looking at it more of how can, how can I, how can my coaching staff teach your child speed as it's a classroom activity in a high school, right? I want to set the environment for success. So if I tell an athlete to do something, the guardrails are up, the bumpers are up, so hopefully they can figure it out and they can kind of self-organize in a way. I love that principle. Instead of like having to overcoach a kid, right? And they get that paralysis by analysis and you get that little spinny wheel of death that you get on the Mac because you hit the keyboard too many times. And in our coaching talk to our interns and our young coaches, we even talk about that. Like, okay, if you see the spinning wheel of death, tell them to go get a drink of water, come back, and they'll probably figure it out. So for me, the data has been invaluable and in not only like helping us program for success, but it really has changed the program over the course of time. Like yeah. you come in before the Proteus, like our core training looked completely different mm. rotationally. Now it's completely changed because when we put everybody on the Proteus the first time, it's like, oh, we have really bad rotational core. And it's not so bad that the rotational core is bad. It's they're not using the ground effectively when they're doing their rotation. So it's more a ground force issue when you cycle back to it as you're rotating. But utilizing the proteus to do that, how am I going to use med balls in that now? How does my anti-rotation fit into that? 
you have all these things that you're like, okay, these this is how I program, right? We have these buckets of how we might program and things fit in different buckets or whatever, but how can I blend it all together better so I get better results for the athlete? And then you have that quick check with the data. Oh, that worked, that didn't work. I don't have to wait for a research article to come out in 10 years to be like, oh, that worked. Or yeah. wait until I have talk to another coach and like, we're seeing success with this. Oh, okay, what are you doing? Oh, we're doing the same thing. Okay, I'm on the right track. So having the data there right away, I don't. we don't get bogged down by the metrics. It's more using the metrics to drive the hierarchy of program design. Yeah, 100%. You know, it, I, as you're talking, I think back to my experience with track. And it is funny because it wasn't until I got actually the free lap timing system that was about, at this point, about 10 years ago, that my speed training process really started to change. Because I was timing people in fly 10s and all the stuff I thought that should be working and improving their time wasn't working. And so that every time we went out and trained, it would be a, you know, an individual session, or it was club track or whatever, I was always being mindful. And I love the spinning wheel of death analogy too. Because I think, yeah, it, it's such a good picture of, yeah, and I've been there where I say too much to an athlete. You can just tell they're like, they're kind of paralyzed. They can't embody what you're saying at that point. But before, when I was coaching track at Wilmington College, you know, it's funny enough, like I didn't have a timing system. There. It was just, the, I mean, I had the stopwatch, you know, but it's like, it's not every day with the stopwatch. It's not as accurate if you're running like 40s or a fly. T- you can't do a fly 10 on a stopwatch. It's just, impo- I mean, it's not impossible. It's not going to be very good. And so the closest you're going to get is if you run like a fast 120, a fast 150 meters in practice, because then you can be reasonably accurate with the time. But that's not something you necessarily do like every, <laughs> every session or every week, though, at the same time, a lot of it is maybe slightly, you know, 97, 95% or something like that. But anyways, what I'm trying to say is once I did have those data points, like with the running, that then everything started to change because I'm constantly going back and forth between what I'm saying, what I'm seeing on the video, taking on the iPad, coach's eye, and, I, and that evolved my speed training, not to mention being able to spend time with the dairy and bar all the time very quickly. But before then, like I had coached Javelin as well. So I, I threw Javelin in college and I coached it and I actually felt like I, back in the day, I took to coaching Javelin and was a pretty effective Javelin coach because you did get instant, instant metrics. It was basically because you can always just go see how far you can throw it. Like that's not, that's a little different. I feel like you have a more capacity to do a lot of Javelin throws too than you do like a lot of max 150s or 120s. And so always seeing that feedback in Javelin, you know, data point, not heavy tech based. The tech was the tape measure, but that was because I could see it, it changed things, but it just, my, what I'm trying to say is it took me longer with speed, but what you're saying with the Proteus is super cool. And, and maybe you describe that as well before I get too far into it, because, you know, I think a lot of people know what that is. But and maybe this is an interesting way, like speed is is a little simpler almost in, in some senses than doing like really 3D, like swinging and core based stuff. There's a I mean, it's all complex. The human body is incredibly complex. But like how in the, ever in the past do we really measure core? I mean, I guess you could say you could do a medicine ball throw and time it, you know, and get a speed gun on it, which takes a little piece of technology. Or how far could you do a twisting throw or something like that? We probably always could. But yeah, tell me with the Proteus specifically, because I know we'll get into the 1080, but, you know, maybe I'm jumping from the back of my question list and that's okay. But yeah, that, I'm really intrigued with that. So tell me a little bit first on the data the, the Proteus has given you and then how you've, how that is causing you to see the core training you do now in a different light. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, like the, the Proteus is a giant, looks like a giant robotic arm, okay? I mean, the best way to describe working on it would be, it's very similar to you set the resistance level and you get 3D resistance. So it's just like I'm moving underwater, right? I'm getting the same fluid resistance. And then what we do is you have different tests that you can do on it. And then 
the one test in particular that we started with was uh, the Cressy power test, which is a series of different tests. And there's, for instance, the big one that we look at is there's a trunk rotation. So you're sweeping the arm from right to left, you pause, sweep it back. That gives us an idea of what your rotational core power looks like. Are you deficient in strength? Are you deficient in power? Is it a speed issue? And then you compare that to a plyo trunk rotation, which now I get a counter load. And a lot of times for our, our rotational athletes, if if that counter load where we're utilizing the stretch sorting cycle is deficient compared to this kind of the more static, I'm pausing and loading and rotating trunk rotation, uh, then we know that we have a rotational deficiency looking at it from like a stretch sorting cycle, right? I have a lack of ability to load and explode like I need in baseball, right? If the pitcher, he's going to do a quick load before he lets go of the ball. Hitter, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to load before, and it's not static, like I come back and I pause. It's quick, right? So we're looking at that is how, how can we now improve that? So for us, if it's one of those where you're deficient in that, we're going to focus on more of the stretch shortening cycle. How do we train the stretch shortening cycle rotationally, right? So now you're looking at a whole new caveat of training that previously to Proteus, I, I, I didn't really think about it. It was just like, okay, well, we have these different variations of med ball throws. We'll, we'll utilize these. That'll train rotational core well. And you kind of look at, there's times where you look at it and you're like, well, is rotational power really a thing, right? Because you're really just, there's a, right in the core, we have an eccentric side and a concentric side. And you're, that's all you're really doing and you're utilizing ground force. So I think for the athlete or the layperson, you got to use the term rotational core. Like that's rotational power. That's what the client wants to hear. So that's kind of how we utilize the Proteus to really fine tune what we're doing with our overhead athletes. And when I say overhead athletes, we're talking volleyball, tennis, softball, baseball, right? It's not, you can even make an argument like hockey, right? I still have to be able to rotate. So those are the big sports where kind of we've seen the Proteus have great success. And then you look at the 1080, which we're going to get into that kind of, that's the lower half. It does really well testing those, those numbers. Another thing the Proteus has been great for is you have a return the sport athlete, right? Now, instead of just doing like static at isometrics or manual muscle tests, we can actually get a power output reading on, I can put them at 90-90 and, and rotate. Okay, well, that's the power output for, I don't, instead of doing an isometric test there or, hey, he's a three on the scale of manual muscle testing. So that's been really helpful to be able to give that dialogue and feedback back to the physicians, back to the PTs when we're doing return to throw programs with athletes as well. So with the produce, just to kind of, you know, it's funny because as I, you know, I've been here uh, with the 1080, we've definitely done more interaction with that. That's been really interesting kind of going through that and seeing the different groups and ratings of athletes there. But I haven't spent that much time on the Proteus. There was one like, uh, it was like a circuit I went through on it, but not, uh, not the point where we're kind of talking about looking at the data and we're seeing, okay, this is your profile and here's some suggested uh, exercises. And so for me, you're being a narrow ISA, use, I use the stretch shortening cycle in everything, like extensively, a lot of rhythm and stretch shortening cycle probably defines how I tend to move. And so would you say, like, just for an example, so if I could use stretching and, you know, shortening on the, pro and the Proteus really uh, showed that, what would array of exercises for me tend to look like that you, would, and then what would you want to see? Because I'm also thinking like, well, obviously, I probably shouldn't end up trying to be a wide ISA who's maybe amazing at the concentric either. But what would, where are the good landing points that you're seeing as, as you go through athletes? Or maybe I'm getting too far ahead of myself. <laughs> Anyways, if I rotate a ton and I don't have a lot of just concentric starting strike, what would my programming look like? Or what at least you do be considering for my program with that? 
if you're struggling with the concentric strength and you're already good at stretch shortening, then I think it's just we're looking at how are we training with our medicine balls? Are we using a heavier load? When we're using the Proteus, we're using a heavier load, right? We're trying to overcome that initial velocity, right? Instead of utilizing the stretch shortening cycle. I think for me, it's looking at the different things you're good at. And if you're really good at that, then that's probably not something I need to necessarily touch. If you're really bad at something, then that's where we need to spend the majority of our time. And then we need to try to blend the two of them together. I'm not necessarily, get, if you're really good at it, I don't need to focus a whole lot on it, right? Yeah. If an athlete comes in, we love using, for instance, especially with our college and pro athletes, I love using Cal's kind of 5, 10, 20 to figure mm-hmm. out, okay, where am I starting this athlete from a strength training perspective? Are we, are we going to go isometric? Are we going to go concentric? Uh, do we need to go eccentric or do we need to train speed? And with our NFL guy, we, that's, that's all we do. Every four weeks, he runs one. We look at his 1080 data and we figure out what cycle he needs to be in. And it's interesting to see like vertical jump increase, speed mm-hmm. increase, because of you're just really being spot on with what the athlete needs. And I think that's where you just look at the data and say, well, what's it suggesting that he needs? So I think for me and the way we work and operate, it's just, okay, what are you really bad at? And then let's just focus on those things. Not to say we're going to skip the other things, but your training program doesn't be really, really heavy in something that you're really, really good at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I think about with that. What are your thoughts on, and I, I do think it is, it is really interesting to see those points and to kind of know like, you know, what do I cater towards? Because I, I always think too about, and I've mentioned this on the podcast, but the idea of like how far into someone's weakness do you want to go in the sense of, and, and I was thinking like how long you might have an athlete. Like if you only have an athlete for let's say eight to 12 weeks and you spend it working on their weakness in the off season, like that's the best place to spend that time for sure. I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I think sometimes like if you have a little, like someone who's super whippy and rotational and that's their superpower, uh, what's your thought on like, you don't want to like rid them of their superpower, but you're giving them a little what they don't have. I'm just curious what you think of those uh, balance points, if that makes sense. And also the time frame you have, because if you had someone the whole year, you know, and you just train their week to sell year, it might be a different story. But yeah, I'm just curious what your take is on that when you do have the athletes in for that. No, I, I think that's a great point. You look at what somebody's superpower is and then, right, that's their, that's what they're really, really good at. I guess this came up in our last staff meeting where it was kind of brought up somebody dropped a cresciasm on me and it was athletes are supreme compensators, right? So they'll compensate in a pattern because they have limited hip internal rotation or limited hip external rotation, or I might have a thrower that has limited shoulder IR. So they've done something with their scap so they can get more IR or they might finish funny in correcting the imbalance or the thing that they're really, really bad at. Are we making them a worse athlete, right? It's hard to say what is the box you want somebody to fit into because I feel like every athlete is slightly different, mm. if that makes sense. I know like this last year, we've kind of gone down the ISA angle thing and that's opened up my eyes to a whole lot of things. And I teach speed even more different now because you're like, well, crap, I should have told that person not to do that. And they, <laughs> uh, But I think it's, you make a great point. Like you want to look at what their superpower is, but at the same time, what are they really, really bad at? How much time do I want to spend on that? Like what is the actual good range? So for us, like if, if you show up and you have, let's say, deficient hips, right? If my hip IR is 20 degrees, right? But my hip ER is 60 degrees, right? You know, technically, an athletic hip, you're looking for around 80 degrees of range of motion. So, yes, they've checked that box, but can I possibly increase hip internal rotation a little bit and make external rotation a little bit worse, a little bit tighter? 
will that hurt the athlete? How much is that going to change their running gait? How are they running? Like, we'll put them on the 1080. Are they really missing mid stance? Are they missing mid stance because they're they're lacking the hip IR? But is the way they're running? Have they gotten fast already because of the way they position their foot when they're hitting mid stance, and they've already found a good way to achieve um, that? So, I mean, there's a lot of different things that you could go down as far as like, here's the norm. Now, what are we going to do to correct the imbalances that we see, and how far do we want to correct the imbalances? So, I think a few years ago, if you talked to me about like shoulder internal rotation, I really wanted 50 to 60 degrees, right? But if I have 180 of a total arc, then that's going to be more than sufficient. And it may be that I have a lot more layback in ER than I have IR, but if the humeral head's already retroverted 20 degrees backwards, then my my IR needs to start at 20 degrees in ER, so I might actually have sufficient range of motion. So I think looking at the numbers and the data to try to help you figure out, okay, where's the norm? What is my minimum threshold for the athlete to see success without injuring themselves? To me, that's my point is, if the numbers are bad, but they're already high-level athlete, I don't want to change their performance, but how long can they sustain this performance until an injury occurs? And I think that's where you have to look at it from a different side of the coin. Yeah, I'm sure getting into like trends too long time, if you had like enough cohort data, right, on like this type of internal rotation, external range, you could probably like extrapolate that out or, or you know, see if an athlete is possibly at a greater risk. I, I think about too, I, I like the idea of, I think of things in terms of wells sometimes, because I, I look at this more from a, like just a technical perspective. If an athlete sprints a certain way or throws a certain way, we talk about bandwidth. Like you should be in this bandwidth in terms of what your joints or body is doing. And once you get outside of it, that could be an issue. And I look at sometimes in athletes, if they have a superpower or a strategy in that, and they've just dug into that so hard, I think sometimes different strategies serve you well. Like using me as an example, I think I, by nature, like I was a pretty good javelin thrower. Like I was extremely whippy, but that whippiness, that whippy strategy doesn't serve me well if I apply that to sprint acceleration. It's actually too loose and drawn out to be able to keep good timing and force application. And so maybe that's like my perspective. It's like, yes, if I'm going to, you know, maybe it's great for javelin. Maybe I don't even need to mess with it that much there, but it's a well that I've gone into because I'm so good at it and my body's kind of built for that, that if I go and apply it to a different skill, like I, I need to be taught to get out of that well, if that makes sense. And that's my, my more technical, I guess that's my more macro <laughs> approach to that. No, and it's, it's, micro. it's interesting that you bring that up because I think <clears throat> that's where, like with our high school level athletes, maybe they're not a high level baseball player, right? And they come to us and they're training for baseball. But we start to see trends in, in the running or you see trends in other things and you're like, your body lends you to be really good at this sport. Have you tried this sport? And then you can start, like we had a girl that was really, she, she loved volleyball, jumped really high, but you look at her height, she wants to stay on the outside. You're not going to play outside of 5'6". So you look at, she's super springy. Running was always really well for her. She did, her numbers were great. And now she runs track. And it was just a suggestion. Like, hey, have you tried to run track? which sport do you think you have a feature in? Probably track. Okay, well, why don't we give this a try, right? And then you see them have success there because you kind of help to guide them towards something that their body would naturally be good at, right? Whereas other athletes, you know, you can just look around a room and be like, oh, they're a swimmer. They're, you know what I'm saying? Like different body types, different are, are going to lend themselves better to the different sports. So that's kind of the fun part of working with the younger youth population is like, 
making subtle suggestions like have you tried this sport hmm. so i'm actually thinking you mentioned swimming and i was thinking about that with do you have have you any had any uh swimmers get on the proteus just because i i think of them being as longer and whippier you know by nature yeah we have not i don't have a lot of swimmers in <laughs> yeah, here to be yeah. honest with you so <laughs> yeah no i i i actually wouldn't think you know part of me is i i swimming in dry land i think tends to be relatively niche i don't know too many places in this area that have a lot of swimmers in so but i was just curious just because you know it's funny that it's on my mind too because the ncaa NCAA men's championship is going on right now and you know i just i'm thinking back to those that type of mover and we it's funny because we timed sprints for the sprint the swimmers as well and it was always so funny to see you talk about movement wells and like who was fast and who wasn't because like if you're a swimmer like usually your ankles are like flippers you know and but it was the breaststrokers that actually could light up a 10-yard dash because they were like more, ex- their legs were a little bit more bow-legged type. You have to do that to do breaststroke. So they could actually, and they're the only swimmers who really had glutes for the most part or more glutes So with that rotation. So I, I always found that that funny. But back to what I had, um, you know, what I asked too, like, so if you had me, at least for like, all right, hey, Joel, you're in a well of, you are in the stretch shortening, use, you know, you are maxing out that well. And and I do, I see it in my arm even when I'm running. And I think maybe it's a jumping thing too. Even when I was doing high jump, actually, at my early on, I used, I just swung my arms way too far back. Everything was just this big, long whip. And so if you had me for the off season and, and wanted to approach that weakness, uh, like what types of medicine ball, is it like medicine balls with just a static start, like where I don't get a counter movement and then like maybe take me through a little battery if someone in my shoes who wants to work that in. Because I think I talk about this in like, ju- you know, jumping or sprinting or that, you know, ground or feet paced standing feet uh sprint and jump type moving a lot but i haven't had this conversation with like trunk and core uh that yeah on the podcast yeah i think from my point it would be starting with more static starts with heavier loads um whether it be on the proteus or the medicine balls and then over time we're going to progress that into more of our ballistic throws where you're getting a counter load right and still doing the counter loading with a heavier load right so your body's now going to have to kind of organize a little bit better if I keep it at a light weight, you're just going to be able to whip it, which you're naturally good at. So keeping it at a heavier load and then working towards what we like to finish with, where it's more partner-oriented, where you have to catch, redirect, and throw. I think that's your hierarchy to work it towards. And I think if you're naturally whippy and, and able to rotate very well and have a good stretch sorting cycle, then I think working at those heavy loads becomes appropriate because now I'm I'm taxing that a little bit more and I'm working in what you're, what you're weakest at, which is that initial concentric start. So probably from a training side, you're going to be one of those guys who's going to live more on the strength end of the spectrum when we're training, not necessarily going into like a speed phase till the very end, kind of breaking those two things down. So, Gotcha. And then, so do you do that kind of in concert? Like, you know, I know you have pitchers in here like throwing too, which is probably one of the, you know, I've seen like the pocket radar throw speeds, you know, the guys are doing bullpen and stuff. So, and imagine too, like swinging and bat speed and stuff like that. Is that something that you're kind of running in tandem? Like kind of have those markers. It's like, here's what I'm seeing on the Proteus. Here's what I'm seeing with your pitching velocity or your swing velocity and stuff like that. I, I'm curious too, just because I, I wonder, I, I don't have like my knowledge set is not like a baseball swing. Like I get it, but I'm not, I'm not that's not something that I have trained people in. Last time I was, uh, they, they did a little like home run derby at Cal when I was there. Like they'd throw you like little like 30 mile an hour easy. And I would swing it like a golf swing. And I'm like, man, how's my, I've clearly been golfing a lot, not playing baseball. But I, you know, just curious what, how you connect what you're seeing there to what you're seeing on the, with the, the swing and the, the rotational actual specific outputs. Yeah. I think for us and the way we've kind of looked at it is 
not so much trying to marry the two skills together. Like we have athletes that we can identify, whether it's in the pitching motion or hitting motion, like they're deficient in maybe hip shoulder separation. They're deficient to be able to hold IR. So we'll come up with like specific medicine ball drills or exercises to help them feel that. And then a lot of times what we do is over the course of the off season, just we'll use a lighter load for those. And then we'll just use the pocket right or the velo those so they can see improvement. Because those are just some things that if I don't do effectively, I'm not going to be able to throw hard or, or especially the medicine ball hard. And then that has a better connection to their sports skill. Now, over the course of the off season, like with the pro group, we're heavier in our med ball rotation stuff towards, I'd say like maybe like week four or five in. Initially, when we get them back, it's more of just like, let's just get the body right. Yeah, They're coming off a long season. Then we'll start to rotate a little bit. And then as their volume increases in their hitting load or their pitching load, we're actually trying to back off on the, the med ball rotations a little bit. And then we're starting to do more med ball rotation work on the non-dominant side. Oh, got um, it. That so balance. then that way, yeah. And then that way, it kind of balances itself out a little bit more. I think you can get lost in just overtraining the one side. And then that's going to lead itself down the road to maybe some oblique issues or just more imbalances through the spine. So we've had good success with that. Don't, haven't had a lot of guys with oblique injuries, knock on wood or yeah. I, as I speak, but that's just something I, I like to look at things as more of a volume standpoint, especially when we're looking at starting to add in swinging and, and throwing a baseball. I think we need to account for those stressors because once we get into like early December, that's when throwing programs are really starting to ramp up. So you're really talking about from October to really December, we have that amount of time frame to get some heavy load of rotational exercise in before we start the pullback a little bit gotcha yeah so just once you get it's like you know think about the buckets like if it's the most specific thing and you're doing a lot of it you don't want to do a lot of special special strength on top of it just enough to balance it out yeah that's how they get hurt if we're doing too much too soon volume is the killer volume is where you get hurt yeah yeah especially with baseball i suppose and and year-round like throws and things like that so you got to balance out the backhand frisbee throw (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's actually kind of funny i've that's almost the skill that the way I've kind of come along is I'm almost built the best for the backhand, the backhand frisbee throw in some ways. So Kevin, with um, I wanted to ask you as well. So you know, on the uh, kind of on the topic of data-based in referencing some of the data and what you're seeing, tell me where you've gone with the 1080 sprints. We just talked a little bit about the throwing, swinging type end of things. Then you mentioned you got, do you have those two main things, the Proteus and the 1080? So tell me a little bit more about how your approach to speed uh, has been impacted by the 1080 and then even like maybe how it's changed a little bit now that you've seen some of the the data points and then what you're doing now. Yeah, I mean, to just hit it from a macro level view here, I if you told me how I taught speed two years ago, I would laugh at that person just because what we've learned with the 1080 data, it just, you just cross a lot of things off. You're like, well, I don't really need to do that anymore or that really doesn't matter like I thought it mattered before. It's not to say like, this one method of teaching speed is terrible, right? It's just, well, there's there's a more efficient way to skin that cat. And I think from our standpoint, looking at utilizing the 1080, it was initially, you can get very overloaded. Like you get this initial, like, okay, we have this tool, what are we using it for? Initially, it was just to look, how are we going to find asymmetries in our athletes, right versus left? What actually matters, right? Then looking at it as, okay, we can kind of see who has like, issues with mid stance transfer a little bit because you get a little hiccup at the top of the graph. And then I think you could just kind of infer and come up with your own answers, but having the wherewithal to check back in with them and 
they have a great sports scientist, Ola, who you just send them an email. Hey, I'm seeing this. What does this mean? And just keep checking in with them to try to figure out and learn. And then it, we went down this load velocity rabbit hole of trying, okay, how do we find the right load? It's just like, I think a lot of people get lost when they get a 1080 and they look at loads and VDEC and velocity and how it, it's overwhelming. But like I've been trying to preach to our younger coaches who are trying to learn it right now is you understand bar speed principles, right? In the weight room. We're just trying to apply speed principles with the 1080. It's the same concept, right? We're still utilizing the said principle. We're just making sure that we're hitting specific adaptations for opposed demands. When we're looking at it from a speed side, right? It's like, I, I need this V-deck to hit acceleration. I need this V-deck to hit late acceleration. I need this V-deck to hit transition. I need this V-deck to hit top end. So you're just applying those principles and utilizing V-deck or velocity decrement to apply a specific demand within the running cycle, right? Or within the sprint whatever it be. And then last year we went down a rabbit hole of, I finally figured out how to use, I think it was JB's fancy, like force velocity. Like I would copy over a thousand data points out of the 1080, paste them in there and then hit the solver and then try to figure out, okay, what's RF, what's DRF. And you're starting to look at numbers that you have no idea what I had no idea. I don't know how many phone calls I had with Adam and Ola and, and trying to figure out what these numbers meant and how to use them. And then thank God they came up with the easy, you just click a button on the 1080 and you get the force velocity profile right oh, yeah. there because that saves me hours. Yeah. But having those numbers and what do those numbers mean? And I think that's where we came up with the concept of, okay, let's look at, let's look at some work some other people have done. So whether it's, it's less, whether it's what Matt Rea does with the 1080 or has been doing or Cameron Josie and looking at those guys, okay, what are their numbers? What do their numbers mean? What are they utilizing? How are they grouping athletes based off these numbers? How can we tighten our group a little bit? Because, yeah, we're utilizing this with professional athletes, but a lot of times it's with college athletes, a lot of times it's with high school athletes. So our numbers aren't going to be exactly the same. Like, I don't necessarily need a high school athlete to hit 55% RF. Like, that's pretty damn good. As long as they're above 50, can we move them to the next phase, right? Can we move them to a group two? How, how are we always going to move them? Or are they always going to stay in group one if they're always deficient? Like, there's some high school athletes that we're utilizing it with that simply haven't fully hit puberty yet. So their their RF is going to be bad because their relative strength, their body weight is bad. Mm -hmm. So unless you're checking that box, I think we still need to be able to, I'm not going to be stuck training an athlete in acceleration the full time. I think you still have to do max velocity work. So I think looking at numbers, what matters, how you're going to judge an athlete and then what bucket I'm going to train them in. I think you still got to hit all the buckets, but I think being able to know what bucket or classification they're actually in and then make their workout more specific for that is is very helpful. Yeah. So you had mentioned that you tried things like the things that I guess you used to think worked or, or that were commonly accepted you found didn't. I'm curious what some of those like examples are like kind of what you found didn't work when you actually looked at what your output was on the machine. I think for us, it was just the way in which we did everything. I didn't need to do like seven drills in a speed session, right? It was like, okay, what is the athlete bad at? Okay, let's look at them. Are they a wide ISA? Are they a narrow ISA? That's going to dictate a lot about how they run, right? So right away, that's one thing that we're checking. And then I think it's it's looking at, okay, well, if they're a wide ISA and they're not rotating well, we need to help them rotate, right? And is it coming from their arm swing? Is the arm swing causing the rotation, not the work? And then are those things syncing up not allowing them to have efficient ground contact. Is the ground contact working for them the way they are? I know 
we used to teach a lot of kids. We used to be like, okay, you got to stay narrow when you accelerate. And then mm-hmm. you look at the guys accelerate on the 1080 with good data points. You're like, oh, crap. Okay. Well, just try to get to this point, right? It's It goes back to the range. Like you can go do this, but here's the range I want you to live within. But I think a lot of it comes down to how much rotation is actually good when we're sprinting. What's the arm swing look like? Because if we're not generating some sort of downward pulse with the arm swing, we're not efficiently loading the lower half. And then a lot of these athletes just don't know how to transition from a class one to class two lever. They're, they get stuck in a class two and they're trying to run in a class two and they're bad accelerators because of it. And I think you look at those things and you have your key concepts and how can I have these key concepts drive speed? I mean, there's definitely times where I have to take an athlete because they're still breaking at the midline and I got to take them over to a wall, figure out what a power line feels like for them. Right. Right. So it's not saying every, some things are good. Some things are bad. It's just like what works for that athlete. I think being in this field since 2009, it's hilarious to watch the pendulum go back and forth. Right. And it's like, okay, well just take a little bit from every side, live in the middle and you're going to do really, really well. I think that's the key point. It's like, don't live on extremes, live down the middle and just take from everything. And and make a philosophy that's your own. And what do you want to accept and what don't you want to? So, but there's definitely different things. Like I, we don't really do a ton of skipping anymore. We don't really do a ton of marching anymore. It's not to say that's bad, but that's more like a low level warm up exercise yeah, for it's us now. For the warm-up, yeah. Right. It's rhythm, it's coordination. They need to learn that. It's just not a staple in our speed program anymore. I'm not going to band resist it anymore. We're not going to do like PVC pipe stuff for that. Like we used to do, all right, put a PVC pipe, hold it up overhead, march, PVC site skips, stuff like that. Like I still do running with PVC pipes from time to time if if the if it warrants it, right? But it's looking at each athlete individually and then to me, making athletes faster comes down to are you training them at the appropriate VDEC? That's what it comes down to. So like our high school class, it's a lot of sled work, change of direction, running at maximal velocities. And then just we just manipulate the loading scheme whether it's sled bands or whatever, because at the end of the day, like if they get better at that acceleration phase, they're going to get faster. And if we sprint them at max velocities, that's going to kind of neurologically move that. I love the analogy of like ripping the governor out of a golf cart so it can drive faster, right? That's going to allow the athlete to sprint faster. So I think it's getting the horsepower strong enough so that they can drive the car fast and then teaching them how to drive the car fast with the max velocity stuff. I love car analogies, but yeah it's good to have the yeah the analogies are definitely helpful like i like the spinning wheel i keep going back to the spinning wheel of death on the mac so you know as you're saying that too it i think so oftentimes we think of acceleration you watch a lot of videos and it's it's approached as if it's like we'll project really far and do big big arm motions but that will almost if you do that it's going to put you into a much more narrow and less rotational way of running and i'm curious you know if that's kind of maybe what you're referring to a little bit because you know like you mentioned like you do have to have a little elements of rotation you have to have like the research has shown sprinters have a certain stride width that they start with and so it's almost like you've kind of ditched the drills a little bit and just have gotten more specific it's like if you want to sprint sprint now we'll manipulate it goes back to what i said earlier about like okay what's Mm -hmm. the environment i want to create how do i make it successful for the athlete it's choosing thing it's choosing drills that are specific to what the athlete needs to get better at it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, and I think that's how you have to look at speed. I know for me, when we're looking at acceleration, I'm looking at video. What's thigh timing, right? To me, that's really important. If the athlete's dumping and they can't understand a power line, but I think there's also, if I overcoach the power line, I think you can have athletes who actually kind of overpush on yeah. that backside, mm-hmm. and they get too locked out, and then that thigh timing is thrown off because they can't pull their leg through fast enough. And then 
instead of doing like a nice little toe drag during acceleration, right? That foot and that heel recovery gets too high. So I think a lot of things that historically I might have done, right? Maybe put athletes in that bucket where they were they were doing those things wrong because I was too focused on that backside extension. And now I, you do have to project the hips. You do have to do certain things like that. And I think athletes can be bad at those things. And there's times it's like I found myself last week working with a kid. We were doing wall drills, hip projection. Like that's what he needed to understand what he was doing wrong. So I think each kid needs something. And I, I don't think anything is inherently bad. Like if I do a bunch of drills with athletes, they're probably going to get faster. But if we're looking at it at more like a micro level or trying to help a specific athlete, then we got to. And if they're taking the time to take time out of their day to pay for our services, I want to make sure that I'm giving them the best avenue or environment for success. That's just how I look at it. Yeah. You know, I know too, um, and I know we just got a few minutes left here, but well, I'll just say this quickly too. It does sound like with that developmental high school group, like you're kind of training the poles, like you're training resisted, you're training like the high velocity. And then ultimately as they move on, it sounds like it's almost moving more towards the middle over time or something like that, perhaps. Yeah. All right, so Kevin, what is next for you in, you know, you're, you have a little bit of a transition coming up. So uh, tell me, you know, you mentioned the story of this gym. Tell me a little bit about where you're headed here. Yeah, so if you asked me a few months ago what was next, it'd be, uh, we're just going to keep riding this Pro Force thing, grow it, see what happens, and had a huge opportunity come up. Eric asked me to come be part of the Yankees organization. So on uh, next Friday, start my venture down to Tampa and I'm going to be working with the uh, New York Yankees. Extremely excited. I'll still be the CEO and owner of ProForce back here. And it's it's exciting on two fronts because I love to watch people grow. And to be able to delegate my day-to-day task to Josh and Connor back here and split those up and say, hey, Josh, you're going to be the chief performance officer. Connor, you're going to run more of the uh, chief operating officer role. And um, look at how things work from a distance, see how they do with things support them and then come back in the off season as much as I can. But I'm extremely excited because if you would have asked me what my end goal was in 2009 coming out of college, it was hundred percent. I wanted to be a major league baseball strength coach. And I think different things in life happen, different goals change. My values changed. I wanted to be a dedicated husband and father. And that doesn't align with being gone 162 days out of the year plus. So forever grateful for this opportunity to come up and try to dabble in a world that I didn't think I would ever be able to dabble in because of kind of what my values in life were, but they're more than receptive and willing to kind of put me in a situation that still meets what my values are in life. And I always said I would do it on my terms and Eric and, and Dono and the organization has been great about helping me create those terms. So yep, April 10th, I'll be working with them and extremely excited, but like I said, still be heavily involved here in ProForce and hoping that great things are still to come for this organization and I'm excited to see where everything grows. So I know we've had those conversations off mic about kind of what's next and looking at it. And it's always, it's always kind of blurry as a strength coach, right? Cause if you're in, if you're in the professional realm and the college realm, it's like, well, I could be fired if coach has a bad year. Right. So I think uh, the private side of things has been great to me. It's been great to watch things grow. It's allowed me to kind of dabble in things and, and make me a very good coach at certain things. And I'm excited to be part of an organization that wants me to bring those those things to them. So, Cool. Well, good luck to you, man. And hey, thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.
Thanks for tuning in to another show. It was great having you here and we'll see you all next week.